0: So last week we were in Revelation chapter 19. That chapter talks about two big things. It talks about a wedding and a warrior. It's the wedding, the marriage supper between the Lamb, Jesus, and His church, His bride. And then it goes on to talk about Jesus coming as a warrior and basically laying it down on the broken world. And so we talked all about that last week. And this is, like I said, this is the exciting part of Revelation because we have spent so many weeks kind of trudging through these difficult things that are going to happen, but now we begin to start to see the glory of God that is going to come in his kingdom towards the end. And so we've, we, we've dealt with destruction and war and evil and all these things, and now we get to see the kingdom of God to come to fruition. And so now we're going to be in Revelation 20, which I will tell you before we even jump into it, is one of the most debated chapters in the entire Bible, There are entire, we're going to get into this, but there are entire theological systems that are rooted around this one chapter. I went to Christian college and seminary, and there are whole classes that kind of talk about what's going on in Revelation 20. And so even to try to talk through Revelation 20 in one week is kind of silly, but we're still going to do it. Okay, we're going to get to that. There are... I want to say this before we even get into that. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who have very strong feelings about Revelation 20 that differ, but they are still brothers and sisters in Christ. This chapter is not a salvation issue. It is a how do you view the end times or what theologians call eschatology, the study of what's going to happen at the end. And people view it differently and that's okay. This is not something that we divide the church over, it's something we can talk about and enjoy learning more about. So let's dive in. Revelation chapter 20. I want you to, before we read that, try to imagine for a second, and I don't mean that in a cheesy Beatles way. Don't just imagine. No, I want you to actually try to imagine a world in which there is no sin, no evil, no greed, no hatred. A world in which the People are living the way that God initially created them to live, in harmony with one another and in harmony with God. There's righteousness and peace and health. It's all there. This is exactly what Revelation 20 is going to start talking about. It's interesting because many Christians, even many who don't spend much time reading Revelation and the other prophetic books, think that being a Christian is all about just going to heaven someday. And they don't spend a lot of time thinking about the kingdom of God that is amongst us now and is in the future. That there is so much more. Not that going to heaven is a bad thing. It's an amazing thing. But there's a lot between here and there. There's a lot that God is going to do. And I've said it many times and I'll say it many more times. Our God is in the business of redemption. It is the family business that he calls us into to be a part of. And it's what he does, it's who he is, he redeems all things. He redeems those who follow him, and he is going to redeem creation itself in the end times. And so chapter 20 follows right after that warrior passage where Jesus comes in on a white horse in victory and destroys the enemies of God. And then right after that, John the Revelator tells us this, verse 1. Then I saw, we're going to see those words a lot, then I saw. This is John letting us know, he's moving to the next vision. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So we see these words, then I saw. And then John the Revelator tells us that there's this angel, he's an unnamed angel, but many Bible scholars have wondered if maybe this is Michael the archangel, because throughout the scriptures, Michael the archangel and Lucifer, Satan, who used to be an angel, are adversaries. We don't know, but that'd be kind of cool. It'd be like a really epic scene in a movie, like all oh, these two people who hate each other. Ah! But they have this moment where Lucifer is grabbed and he is bound. And notice, it doesn't sound like much of a struggle. A lot of times people think that God and Satan are equals. They're not. Satan is nothing compared to God, and even an angel basically just goes and grabs Satan by the scruff of the neck and throws him into the pit. The bottomless pit that is spoken of here is not hell. It's a different thing. This word is the abyss, or in Greek, abuso. It's not the same as what we will read about later, the lake of fire and brimstone. If you've ever wondered where that term fire and brimstone preaching comes from it's because revelation talks about hell as the lake of fire and brimstone and so he throws him into this pit which is a temporary place of incarceration you might remember earlier in revelation 4 i think there are 200 million demons released from the abuso at one point nobody at this point in the story is in hell nobody has ever been in hell at this point story, it is a place that is made for Satan and his cronies, but nobody's been there yet. But there is this pit. You might remember another story in Matthew, and Jesus is casting all these demons out of a guy, and they say, don't throw us to the pit, let us go to the pigs. And then you watch pigs fly off a cliff. This is the bottomless pit, the abuso. And so the angel seizes the dragon... We notice here, this is interesting, the dragon being Satan, is no, he's called all four of his major names in this chapter. He's called the dragon, which is what he's called at the end times. He's called the serpent, which is what he's called in the very beginning in Genesis, when he's the serpent trying to deceive Eve, or successfully deceiving Eve. He's also called the devil, which is a Greek word, diabolos, which means adversary, the one who is adversarial towards God and to all of us. And he's called Satan, which is a Hebrew word, which also means adversary or accuser. This is what the devil does. He accuses. You may feel that the devil accuses you at times, saying, ah, you'll never be good enough. God couldn't possibly love you. That is not God because that is condemnation. That is accusations from the devil. And So he's known by all of these names, The angel grabs him, binds him with the great chain in a pit for a thousand years, and then the angel shuts and seals the pit so that the devil can no longer deceive people. Right at the end of verse 3, there's this interesting sentence that you may have noticed. After that, he must be released for a little while. That's interesting, and we're going to come back to it later. So, put a pin in that. Verse 4 is going to start with another, Then I saw, letting us know, John is moving to the next vision. And this specific section, verses 4 through 6, is where a lot of the theological discussion wraps up in this chapter. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, You may notice six times, I think, in this chapter, the term 1,000 years is used. And so this is known as the millennium, which is literally just 1,000 years. And so this idea of the millennium is where we come into a lot of the discussion. John sees these thrones, and seated on these thrones are people have authority to judge and so we have to ask well who's seated on these thrones and we don't have the answer expressly told to us here and so we have to go to the rest of the scripture to figure this out who's on these thrones of judgment and if you look through the scriptures you can see that there are multiple places where God tells people that at the end of time they will be given authority to judge in Daniel chapter 7 God is speaking to the Old Testament saints and he tells them, and the kingdom and the dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. So he tells the Old Testament saints, you are going to be given authority to judge alongside me. And then in Matthew 19, Jesus tells his apostles that they will be seated on thrones of authority. So the apostles are part of this. And then all over the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Timothy and in Revelation, God tells the followers of Jesus, the New Testament saints, that they will have seats of authority. And then right here in this chapter, it tells us that those who were martyred for the sake of the gospel during the tribulation will have authority. And so these thrones that have people sitting in them are basically all of the people of God. Throughout all of time, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, apostles and martyrs. and So we have all of these people, the untold numbers of people who God has said, I will give you authority to rule and reign over the kingdom of God alongside of me. So what are they doing? What are these people doing? It says, they came to life, meaning they were resurrected, all of the people throughout time that are people of God are resurrected and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. So, if we just follow the really simple, basic understanding of what this chapter is telling us, there are all these people who are resurrected from the dead, the first resurrection, and they have thrones of authority seated underneath the authority of God, and they get to serve alongside of Him for one thousand years years. They get to be priests of God and of Christ. And then it tells us that the rest of the dead, meaning everyone who is not one of God's people, are not resurrected for another thousand years at the end of the millennium. And so this is interesting because I think most people have this idea, even if you've grown up in the church, you have this idea that one day everyone will just kind of come together in this big place and God will say, you're good, you're not, right? That kind of thing. But that's not what the Word of God tells us. There will be a resurrection of the saints, and then a thousand years later, there will be the judgment of the wicked. There's two very different things. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The whole way that I just explained that, and the whole way that I've basically been going about talking about Revelation kind of exists in this theological construct that you can call premillennialism. Yeah, okay, I know I'm getting a little deep into this, especially I forgot that the first graders were going to be here today. Hi, guys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> premillennialism is a big fancy word that just means pre, before, millennial, the thousand years. Jesus is going to come before the 1,000-year time. Right? So at the end of our normal world, Jesus comes, He sets up His kingdom, and we reign alongside of Him for literally 1,000 years. And this is the, the kingdom of God on Earth, and this all takes place before we go to ultimately, heaven. Right? Premillennialism. This is, if you just simply read what Revelation says, I, I believe this is the most basic clear understanding of what Revelation tells us. But there's other schools of thought. Some people read this story, and they belong to a group of people that we call post-millennialism. They think that Jesus actually isn't going to come back until after the 1,000 years is finished. And this is interesting, because if you're post-millennial, then you think Somehow the world is going to get better and better and better until one day Jesus comes and we say, see, here's your kingdom, we hand it to you, everything is great. Now this idea was really popular in the 18th and 19th century. And you can kind of understand why, because in the 18th and 19th century, people were watching things happen, like the Enlightenment, like the Industrial Revolution, Science and medicine were making massive strides. Everything seemed to be moving towards a better world. Well, then the 20th century happened. And you may immediately think of things like World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, nuclear bombs, the Great Depression. All of these things happened in the 20th century, and so people start looking at that and say, it doesn't seem like the world is getting better and better and better, like we're moving towards utopia. In fact, it seems the opposite, that we are moving towards dystopia, where everything is broken. And so less and less people believe this post-millennial idea. But then there's a third major group in this idea. That is very different because this one is not pre-millennial. It's not post-millennial. It is amillennial. A meaning there isn't one, which is kind of a misnomer. But this theological idea, this construct, is that there is no literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. Because if you've been with us through all of Revelation, you've seen there's a lot of symbolic language used in Revelation. And so this theological idea is, there is no literal 1,000 years. This millennium is actually just a symbolic way of talking about the entire church age. So from Jesus coming the first time to Jesus coming the second time, they would say that is the millennium. And so that means we are in the millennium right now And the kingdom of God is here and is growing and is building. And they would say that the proliferation, the spread of the gospel that has happened since Jesus is the example that the world is getting better and better. So it's not about industrialization. It's not about technology. It's not about medicine. It is about the gospel of God spreading. These are very different ways to look at this book. But again, I want to remind you, not salvation issues. We can disagree on these things, and that's okay. I will tell you, I find a lot of weight in both premillennialism and amillennialism. I can read those, and I can say, I get that. Postmillennialism, I can't. I can't look at the world and be like, oh yeah, we are on a trajectory straight to the kingdom of God right now. I can't see that. But these other two, I can understand. The Christian Missionary Alliance, our denomination, is specifically a premillennial denomination in our eschatology. And one of the biggest reasons for that is that our denomination for a hundred years has looked at that as the clearest way to help people understand that there is an urgency for the gospel. Because Jesus is coming back imminently at any moment. And so people need to hear the gospel. I don't personally see why millennials can't see the urgency of the gospel, because he's still coming. And we still need Jesus. Okay? So just from my pastoral standpoint, I can understand both sides of these. I'm 100% comfortable being in the Christian Missionary Alliance who says we are premillennial. But I'm not going to argue with somebody who says I'm all-millennial because I'm like, that's cool. Do you love Jesus? Do you believe he died and resurrected? Do you believe he loves everyone? Okay, we're good then. We can have discussions about these other things. I believe both of them have this sense of urgency. Christ is coming back. And there is an unsaved world full of people that don't know him. And he's given us the gospel and said, help people to know that they are loved by God. So we're going to continue on in Revelation. I'm going to tell you, as we continue on, I'm going to teach this from basically a premillennial standpoint because I don't have time to get for two hours into, well, if you look at it this way, it's this way. And if you look at it this way, it's this. Like, that's a whole semester worth of seminary that I don't have time for and you don't want to sit through. <laughs> Hallelujah. Let's read chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. This is, of course, the final destruction of, of the devil, of the enemy of God. He's released from the abyss after a millennium, and he mounts one final last-ditch effort with his cronies to try to fight God. And of course, he fails and is consumed with fire. And so finally, after the millennium, we see the enemy of God completely and totally done away with to the lake of fire and of sulfur or brimstone. This is what we would commonly call hell. leads us to this final paragraph read with me verse 11 through 15 then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened then another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done This great white throne judgment, there are not Christians at this judgment. There are not followers of God at this judgment. This is the final judgment of the wicked. Those who have denounced Jesus and refused his gift of salvation. And so all of these people are resurrected from all times. Everyone who is not saved is resurrected and they face the great white throne of judgment. White meaning purity and righteousness. Great meaning it's God's and it's going to be a judgment. And notice, their, their names are not written in the book of life. This is the roster of those who have followed Jesus. And so they are not judged based on Jesus' actions. It says that they are judged based on the books of their own lives. They have to stand before God on their own merit with what they have done and be judged by that. And the standard by which they are judged, by which everybody is judged, is the perfection of God. And so if you are, if you are measured by any standard other than the perfection of Jesus, you're lost. And so they're standing there being judged in this courtroom scene and yet in this courtroom there's no defense lawyer there's no arguments because the judge in this court is perfect and holy and just and all-knowing and knows every moment of your existence he knows every detail of the lives of those who he's judging and it says there's no place for them to hide they're there And the books of their actions, their lives, and their sins will be opened up and they will be judged on their own merit. Because they've rejected the gospel, they've rejected the chance to be measured according to the works of Christ and not themselves. And because of that, they're lost and they're cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. I don't want you to miss this today. Because I said in the beginning, we are we're getting to talk about the exciting stuff. And then I started talking about fire and brimstone. Okay, I understand that. But this is after God has given every opportunity to people to be saved. Don't miss this. God did not send these people to hell. They chose that. God sent prophets. For thousands of years to point forward to the gospel of salvation that would come. And then he sent Jesus to be the gospel of salvation for people. And then he built an entire church all over the world to preach the gospel of salvation to the entire world. And then he sent evangelists and witnesses and angels and trumpets and bowls of judgment and angels who fly through the sky proclaiming the gospel. He has done everything to make sure that everybody knows that they can receive forgiveness and grace and mercy. And it's only those who have rejected over and over and over who find themselves at the great white throne of judgment because their names are not written in the book of life. This whole idea of the book of life goes back, if you were with us in the very beginning of Genesis, we talked about the cities. Cities in Rome at this time would have a a book, a register of citizens in good standing. And if you weren't in that book, then you don't get to be in that city. And this is what God is talking about. There is a book, probably not a literal book. That would be kind of crazy. Like there really was this. Okay, that'd be cool. Probably not a literal book. But God has in his mind those who have turned To him and receive salvation. And those whose name is not in that book are lost. Every one of us, come back. Every one of us who have ever lived on this planet will be judged according to one big decision What did you do with Jesus? What did you do with Jesus in your life? Have you surrendered lordship, rulership of your life over to Jesus and asked Jesus for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness? Or have you said, no, I'm in charge of me. I can be the Lord of my own life. I don't need Jesus. That decision will affect your eternal life. Because notice, all throughout Revelation, no matter what theological construct you view it through, everybody has eternal life. And the decision that you make with what will I do with Jesus decides where you are going to spend that eternal life. Will you be with the groom as a part of his blessed bride in his grace and mercy for all of time? Or will you find yourself with your name not written in the book of life? My prayer is that none of us would be the latter. And that everybody in this room or watching online would understand that they are loved by a graceful and merciful God who wants to save them. I said it week after week, 2 Peter, one of my favorite verses, God is not willing that any shall perish, but that all come to repentance. That's the will of God, to save us all. But we have to break our pride and admit, I need to be saved. I cannot stand before a righteous and holy God in my own sin in my own book of actions and say I'm worthy we are only worthy if we are covered by the blood of Jesus so my prayers that every one of us would understand that and that we would have our names written in the book of life if you haven't made that decision if you haven't figured that out then please come talk to me or one of the elders today Please don't leave here not knowing where you stand with that question. What did I do with Jesus? Because Jesus made a choice. What am I going to do with the world? And he said, I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to die and defeat death so that you could be saved. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word again. God, no matter what theological constructs we believe, no matter what we argue about these things, and people spill gallons and gallons of ink trying to describe all these things, and they're exciting and they're they're important, but ultimately the message reminds us that we have to decide what we're going to do with you. So God, would you put it in the hearts of everyone here, everyone watching. Would you just pummel them with your grace and mercy, Jesus? So they would not leave this place not knowing you and not knowing how loved they are by you. God, would you move in this place? Holy Spirit, would you move in the hearts and the minds of all of us?